Yeah, I don't think you care. <laughs> Why would you? Well, you should join the circle, not just be out there. And you guys all go to the same high school? You all go to the same high school? To which high? Uh huh. In Rhode Island. And you're all going to this. Okay, so introduce yourselves. Everyone should introduce um, themselves. These are three visitors, so you guys got to look interested today. Here, no, oh, I have to get you the thing. You should press me. You should push me. Okay. I mean, you know, I know, I know you're just kind of rolling your eyes in your room, but just push me. And then you can stop rolling your eyes. Okay? Okay. All right, this is Barbara. Hi. Hi, Barbara. I'm Ben. Ben? Okay. So wait, wait, so that makes you Kevin. Nice, right. Okay, Ben, yeah, Alice. Um, I'm Elon. See? And several people are missing. Um, well, Tony can't come, and where Gabrielle and Danielle and um, MJ are. All right, um, so I wanted us to talk a little bit more about the Witch of Atlas, so I'm glad you brought um, Shelley in. Did you guys now finish the poem? Like, I know you had officially finished it for last week, um, but have you actually finished it, Muriel? Because yeah. <laughs> of that saying, right? I actually finished it for last class. No, I know you, I, th I, th I think I know that. Have you finished it? Yeah. And you have for last class, too. Like, everyone had. So have you all reread it? How's this for a question? Now, rereading it is, is a way of saying that I actually did finish it for this class. So if you hadn't finished it for last class, but you have finished it for now, you could call that rereading it. So has everyone read or reread the poem by now? How's that? Yeah. Is that a guilty nod or a... No, no, no. no it's a real nod. Okay. All right. Um, so what I wanted us to... And now that you've reread it, you see how amazing it is, right? Right? Large roar of ascent. Let the record show. A large roar of ascent. Um, they were speechless with its greatness. What did you say? You it when I read it the first time. Yeah, I know. I know. And now you've reread it. It's great. Okay. Um, let's look just, um, this is what we didn't quite get to last time. You guys can listen. Um, or look. Can, did you bring it? Yeah. Um, okay, share to the extent that you can. Um, the Witch of Atlas, um, stanza 26. So what's happening here is that um, everyone is coming to see her, and she's aware that all must die. Um, she's a different sort of creature. She's um, a supernatural creature who comes from supernatural origins, um, but she's aware of, let's call it, the human interest that um, Shelley is saying Mary Shelley thought the poem lacked. Um, partly now, you know a lot more about Mary Shelley than you did a few days ago because you've read all of Frankenstein, right? Yeah. yeah. And then uh, you just say all, and then but I'm going to reread it all for for next Tuesday. Yeah. Okay. So everyone's read all of it, and you'll reread it all for next Tuesday, right? Yeah. Okay. You have to learn these little tricks. They're really important in life. 
Um, it's like more important than triple spacing to get to the right number of pages. Um, okay, so um, here what she's doing is looking at all these living beings. We could actually start at um, 22, um, who come to see her attracted um, by the vision of her beauty or by the fact that she is um, a sort of visionary being, um, a being who represents pure beauty, the pure possibilities of beauty. Um, as you will see when we read some more <coughs> Shelley after we read Frankenstein, when we read some more Percy Shelley, um, the idea of what he calls intellectual beauty, um, beauty which offers itself to the mind, is um, really deep for him. It's a platonic idea. So um, if we just start at 22 to contextualize this, the ocean nymphs and hamadryades, oreads and naiads, with long weedy locks, offer to do her bidding through the seas, under the earth, and in the hollow rocks and far beneath the matted roots of trees, and in the gnarled heart of stubborn oaks, so they might live forever in the light of her sweet presence, each a satellite. So as long as they could be in the light of her presence, they offer to do her bidding. But she replies, this may not be, the wizard maid replied. And why not, we now find out. The fountains, this is MJ, everyone. MJ, that's everyone. Um, these guys have missed like six weeks of class, but here they are. Uh, it's just amazing. Um, <coughs> they finally came. Um, this may not be, the wizard maid replied. The fountains where the naiades bedew their shining hair at length are drained and dried. The solid oaks forget their strength and strew their latest leaf upon the mountains wide. The boundless ocean, like a drop of dew, will be consumed. The stubborn center must be scattered like a cloud of summer dust, and ye with them will perish one by one. So, you will all perish, she says. She is a supernatural being, but remember what it means for her to be supernatural, which is that she's only a vision in poetry. Or, only maybe the wrong word in that phrase. Um, she's supernatural because she's a poetic vision, not because she's a transcendent being, because she is a pure creature of the imagination. Um, that's why Shelley says, content thee with a visionary rhyme. This is a vision and not something that is anything beyond a vision. But as a vision, it transcends reality. That's really crucial for Shelley, that the visionary as he is trying to envision it, in trying to envision the visionary, he's trying to envision it as something that transcends the real. Um, so here are all these real or semi-real beings, imaginative creatures, creatures from mythology, but as creatures from mythology, creatures who belong to some kind of real world. Even if it's not the actual world, mythology tells of worlds that it claims are real. Shelley is not telling of a world that he claims is real. For Shelley, reality is not a very important feature of something. 
Um, but these belong to mythological and legendary stories, and they, she says, will all disappear. The world itself will disappear. Um, Shelley, these Shelleys, Byron, were living at a time when new scientific discoveries were making the permanence of the world something that people no longer counted on, no longer believed in. Um, at the beginning of Frankenstein, Mary Shelley refers, actually in a preface that, that Percy Shelley probably wrote, as she says in her introduction, um, writes of the discoveries, among others, of Dr. Darwin. Do people know who she means? Darwin's Sorry? Darwin's father? Um, not his father's grandfather, actually. Um, Erasmus Darwin, nice. And what do you know about him? They Besides that he's an that, ancestor. They told us that in Britlet, so, but oh, were you doing Frankenstein? Yeah, like, how long ago? Like a month ago? Oh, all right, good. <laughs> so you can lead discussion in a few minutes. That'll be good. Um, so he wrote a, actually a long scientific poem, which we could do but won't. And if you ever read it, you'll be glad we're not. Um, called The Loves of the Plants. So he was a scientist, he was a, he was a botanist and a classifier. But what people were discovering um, through geology, through um, taxonomy, through various other um, studies at the beginning of the 19th century was that the world wasn't permanent. And this was um, not impermanent in the religious sense, which is that when um, the Second Coming happened and the rapture and the apocalypse occurred, the world would be destroyed, but simply not permanent in a purely scientific sense. Um, and that was an amazingly disturbing thing to start discovering, to start thinking through. And that's what she says here. All of this will disappear. The fountains will disappear. The boundless ocean will disappear like a drop of dew. It will be consumed the way a drop of dew is consumed in the sun. The stubborn center must be scattered like a cloud of summer dust, and ye with them will perish one by one. So all real things will perish, even unreal real things like the things in mythology. Does that make sense to you, the idea of the unreal real things? I mean, I, just to spell it out in one more sentence, most mythology claims that its entities are real. So even though they're not, it's part of what it means to be a Greek god, let's say, um, or um, um, a, a Sanskrit monster, or whatever. It's part of what, it, of what those entities are in the myths in which they appear, that they are real, that Apollo exists, that Zeus exists, that Hera exists, that these are real beings. Now, they're not real, but it's part of the mythology. In their myths, they are real. Shelley is writing a vision in which it doesn't matter to him, in which it's insignificant whether the witch is real or not. And that's a radical departure because it's a radical demotion of the importance of reality. Shelley thinks vision is much more important than reality. Reality for him is just not that big a deal. And so these here the witch, who is not real, even in her story, she is not a real being, because being a real being is not important, is talking to real beings and saying, you will, you will come to nothing. You will disappear 
at the end of the real world. And ye with them will perish one by one. If I must sigh to think that this shall be, if I must weep when the surviving sun shall smile on your decay, oh, ask not me to love you till your little race is run. I cannot die as ye must. Over me your leaves shall glance. The streams in which ye dwell shall be my paths henceforth. And so, farewell. So she rejects them. She spoke and wept. The dark and azure well sparkled beneath the shower of her bright tears. And every little circlet where they fell flung to the cavern roof in constant spheres and intertangled lines of light. So just get that image. It's um, a moderately complicated one for this poem. That she's in her well of liquid fire or over her well of liquid fire and she weeps and she drops tears, bright tears, and the tears fall into the liquid and they circle out, they ripple out when they fall. And those ripples where they fall um, reflect lines of light to the cavern roof of the cave in which she lives in. So really just see this as, as a, as a um, um, who is it who did Howl's Moving Castle? Um, yeah, see, you can imagine it, this is a Miyazaki um, um, animation. Um, it's that sort of vision that you're getting here. Um, a knell of sobbing voices came upon her ears from those departing forms, or the serene of the white streams and of the forest green. So they leave her, and she hears the knell of their sobbing voices. And then she thinks, I have to stop them from being so attracted to me, because they weep when they discover that I cannot be with them, that they cannot be with me. Um, because they are real and I am not. So all day, the wizard lady sat aloof, spelling out scrolls of dead antiquity under the cavern's fountain-lighted roof, or broidering the pictured poesy of some high tale upon her growing woof, which the sweet splendor of her smiles could dye in hues outshining heaven. And ever she added some grace to the wrought poesy. So now she's weaving something um, in her cave. She's weaving a kind of screen to hide herself from all those who are so intensely drawn to her like moths to a flame. And she reads stories in scrolls of dread antiquity. She probably also reads about mythology in those stories. The reference here, a dim one, um, something Tony would know is to Spencer, to book one of the Fairy Queen, where Archimago is reading few books most terrible, let none them read, says Spencer. And Shelley loved that moment. Well, he loved the Fairy Queen, but he loved that moment in the Fairy Queen. Now the witch is doing something similar. And she is um, putting on this screen that she's weaving some glorious picture, wrought poesy, and meanwhile, on her hearth, and this is the crucial stanza, while on her hearth lay blazing many a piece of sandalwood, rare gums and cinnamon. So she has a fire, and in it what's burning 
isn't just ordinary wood, but this amazingly um, um, odoriferous wood, um, scented woods, sandalwood, rare gums, and cinnamon. And then men scarcely know how beautiful fire is. Each flame of it is as a precious stone dissolved in ever-moving light. And this belongs to each and all who gaze upon. The witch beheld it not, for in her hand she held a woof that dimmed the burning brand. So she's holding her screen and she doesn't see the fire because the screen is preventing her from seeing it. But the crucial lines, and just think about this line, men scarcely know how beautiful fire is. Each flame of it is as a precious stone dissolved in ever-moving light. So what does it mean to say men scarcely know how beautiful fire is? What does that say about, just think about this for a moment, because it's a, a very Shelleyan line. If you get this, you get a whole lot of Shelley. Um, let me just say um, very quickly that Shelley is what Mary Shelley called him. Um, Shelley standardly, if you're talking about both of them, um, the standard way of talking about them is the way that Mary Shelley did talk about them, which is Shelley was Shelley and she was Mary Shelley. So it's not just some um, reflexive sexism on my part that makes me call him Shelley and her Mary Shelley. I'm following her lead. Um, so, but if you get that, you get um, a really um, central idea in Shelley. So here's the question. What in that line, men scarcely know how beautiful fire is? What does that say about the relationship of beauty to knowledge? Courtney. Um, that men see like the beauty in power of fire and the destructiveness of it or like what it can create mm -hmm. but they don't see it's natural and it's um, more like I guess creative beauty okay so they don't they see that it's destructive um, and it certainly is and part of what's amazing about the witch is that she um, shelters from the storm under the surface, or shelters from the winter, under the surface of the liquid fire in her well, so that for her, the fire isn't something that burns, but it's just a pure fluid of beauty, pure, um, it's beauty itself turned into a fluid, into something that can fill a well, but be beautiful as fire. Um, what would, how would the line be different besides metrically different, if it were um, men cannot know how beautiful fire is. What would that suggest? Men cannot know how beautiful fire is. What possible implications or inferences could you make from that? Men can have imagination, or cannot have Say it louder, I'm sorry. Okay, so if men can't know how beautiful fire is, then, um, and this obviously men here means people, um, then um, there's something which transcends the possibility of human knowledge, which is pure beauty, let's say, or at least the kind of beauty that you can have 
in fire. Who's telling us that, though? If he had written, men cannot know how beautiful fire is, um, could we trust that line? Yeah, why not? Kevin, you were about to say. Yeah, because Shelley's a human being, and how could he know if humans couldn't know? Um, but let's say that this were a biblical verse, that we had some prophet saying, Verily I say unto ye, or verily I say unto you, um, humans cannot know how beautiful fire is. Um, what would that prophet be implying? Not only that there's beauty that transcends human knowledge, obviously, um, she would be implying that. Um, but what's the alternative? Why would someone say that? Why would a prophet say that in the Bible? Alice, you look like you want to say. Uh, well, um, maybe that, like, Nice. Their tiny little brains just can't fathom it. Yeah. So it's like limiting what men can and can't do so that like, they can't have these thoughts that are sort of associated with like higher powers. Uh-huh. Okay, good. So who would the higher powers be? And if they were a prophet, who would the higher powers be if we're in the God. Bible? Yeah, God, the angels, something like that. Yeah. Um, here, who would if the line were something like, men cannot know how beautiful fire is, who would know? The deities, but are there any deities in this universe? Not really. Um, I mean, there is Apollo, the all-beholding sun, but he's not really a character. Um, he just gets um, her mother pregnant, and that's basically it. Um, there's no Christian deities, there's no angels, there's no God. There's one possibility, who is it? The witch herself. But then he tells us, but she beheld it not. The witch beheld it not, for in her hand she held a woof that dimmed the burning brand. So she's not seeing its beauty either. Um, the question is, or at least what's implicit in the answer, in, in Alice's answer, and I think the answer is that some of you were, some others were also suggesting, is that the relation of beauty to knowledge, or let me ask this, could there be a beauty that no one could know how beautiful it was? Could you, could you have something like no conscious entity, whether animal, human, or God, can know how beautiful fire is? Would that be a statement that made sense? No. Why not? Because if, not, if there's one, not one person who thinks it's beautiful, then how is it considered beautiful? To exactly. Exactly. That is that beauty is not um, an objective assertion, an objective qualification of something. Um, to say that something is beautiful is a little bit like saying something is sweet. In some ways, it's like saying something is sweet. You know, dogs don't have taste buds for sweetness. Um, dogs can't tell that something is sweet. Um, so you could say, well, a dog could never know how sweet something is. Um, but that, what you're saying is there's some people who have receptors for um, sugar and some who don't. 
some people who have some beings that have receptors for a certain shape molecule and other um, mammals that don't have receptors for that shape molecule. So dogs can't know how sweet something is, but that's because sweetness is a relationship between the shape of a molecule and a receptor for that shape. The idea of sweetness without a receptor for sweetness, if there were no beings in the universe that had a receptor for that shape of molecule, it would make no sense to call that thing sweet. Or let's say there's you know, some taste that we've never had and that no one's ever had and that no being has ever had, which is, let's say, I don't know, the shape of the molecule for um, chlorophyll. There probably is some, some beings probably do have receptors for chlorophyll. But chlorophyll has a really, really um, uh, complicated chemical structure and we certainly don't have receptors for it. Let's just assume no one has receptors for chlorophyll. Um, so could we then say no entity knows just how very chlorophylly this tastes like when we wouldn't even know? As soon as I say, well, it tastes kind of chlorophylly, you probably have an idea of a taste in your mind. Eh, kind of grass-like and sort of yucky like spinach, but you also kind of taste good for you, right? But beauty sweetness, all those things don't exist by themselves. They exist in their perception. There's no such thing as sweetness without the sense of taste. If there were no sense of taste in the universe, or sense of smell, because things can smell sweet also, but if there were no olfactory and, and um, sense of taste in the universe, there would be no reason to talk about sweetness. The same is true for color. We perceive things colored, but what we're doing is we're actually perceiving wavelengths of light that our brains then translate into an experience of color. Um, the wavelengths of light that we're seeing are not different in the same way that the colors we perceive are different. Um, if you look at the wavelengths, it's just much harder to look at wavelengths. So what we do is we automatically turn those wavelengths into experiences which exaggerate the differences. Like in false color photos, you know what false color photos are? Um, it's like if you see a photo of energy usage in the United States or something. Um, and then there'll be a key which says green, low energy usage, um, red, high energy usage, purple, insane energy usage, black, no energy usage and you get a satellite picture of the United States that's key to those colors, it's not that those colors are really what the photograph has taken. It's that um, the photograph is doctored so that you can see things based on um, those colors. And that's what our brains do in reality. We don't see colors in our eyes. We see wavelengths of light. And our brains turn those wavelengths of light first rods and cones, or first cones do, and then our brain's processing which cones various wavelengths are perceived by, turn those wavelengths of light into colors. You know that birds have four kinds of cones, whereas we have three, do people know this? Do you remember rods and cones? Okay, good. So we have three primary colors because we have three different cones that perceive colors. Um, birds have four. Is this stuff you guys know? Yeah, kind of, well, I think it's great talking about this and we'll read the poetry class. Well, good. 
that um, they were really philosophical. That's part of what Frankenstein is about also. Um, so birds have four kinds of cones, which means they have four primary colors, which means they see colors we can't imagine. Um, and they combine those colors in ways that we can't imagine. And it's not, oh yeah, they see green as a primary color. We see green, we just don't see it as a primary color. Um, it's that they have more primary colors than we do. And therefore, their world is colored very differently from the way our world is, and colored more complexly than the way our world is. So do they see colors more truly than we do? No. They just see them differently. Colors occur in the mind. Colors, or we could say colors occur in the brain, where the brain starts with the eye and goes into visual cortex. That's where colors are. However, even with colors, I can say to you something like, um, go down the road and when you get to a blue house, knock on the door because that's um, where um, uh, Miss Havisham lives. And so you go down the road and you look for a blue house and you knock on the door and Miss Havisham would say, come in, I was just about to have some cake. And then you'd see the spider webs everywhere. Um, but what if I said, go down the road till you see um, a beautiful house? That wouldn't be nearly as informative as telling you to go look for a blue house. Because what I think of as a beautiful house, you might not. And what you think of as a beautiful house, I might not. And it's not as though I would say, look for a beautiful house, and we would be thinking about the same thing the way if I said, look for something blue, we would be thinking about the same thing. We could all agree that something was blue, unless you were colorblind, and even so you might agree, but we wouldn't all agree that something was beautiful. So beauty is even more than color. Color is what's called a secondary quality. That is not something that actually exists in the world, but something that exists, that comes into being in the act of perceiving. But beauty feels like a tertiary quality. It's not even a secondary quality. Beauty is in the eye of the beholder, as people say. And that means that the idea that there's some kind of beauty that no being could perceive is self-contradictory. And that's what you were saying, Muriel. That beauty, as you put it, is what's considered beautiful. Beauty is always a consideration. Beauty always comes out of some being considering something beautiful. So to say that no being could know how beautiful fire is, is to be saying something that in a sense doesn't make sense. But that's not what Shelley says. What does he say about the fire? Do you remember? Scarcely. Scarcely. Men scarcely know how beautiful fire is. So what difference does that make to say scarcely rather than don't? Men scarcely know how beautiful fire is. Each flame of it is as a precious stone dissolved in ever-moving light. Yeah? So they have the ability, but they don't take advantage or... Okay, um, so that would be a criticism 
of humans as not um, doing what they need to do to fulfill their ability to perceive beauty. Um, is there a way of seeing this not as being about humans, but about being about beauty? In other words, what we've agreed now is that beauty comes out of the relationship between some object, in this case fire, and its perceiver, in this case humans. Um, do you want to put the onus of that relationship on humans? If they worked harder, they would know how beautiful fire is. They would have a better idea of how beautiful fire is. Or do you want to put the reason for scarcely onto the fire? Mm-hmm. So that just like its nature doesn't really match up with beauty in my mind. Okay, so, but I think if you, if you say that, you're actually putting the onus on humans. That is, we look at fire and we look at the wrong, and we see the wrong thing. Um, Blake very famously said, this is in the marriage of heaven and hell that we talked about a little bit, that um, when the miser looks at the sun, he sees a shining golden shilling. But when I look at the sun, I see a choir of angels shouting, holy, holy, holy. So the idea is that a visionary way of looking at the sun is to see God and his angels. Um, a different way of looking at the sun, because it's all in the eye of the beholder, is to see it as looking like money. Um, so those who look at fire for its use, the uses it can be put to, um, are not looking at it for the beauty that is within it. And so that would put the onus on humans. Um, but what if the onus were on fire? Yay. That was me. <laughs> are you okay? That was what? my phone. <laughs> okay, is your phone okay? It said yay. Oh, it said yay? Okay. It sounded like a little baby crying. Um, what if the onus were on fire? Do you remember the line in Julian and Madelow of the um, of describing the leaf that the madman is holding, which Shelley says is in hue too beautiful for health? So it's so beautiful it can't be healthy. In hue too beautiful for health. So I think the implication here, I mean, I think it's an amazing line, and I think the implication here is something like beauty, the limit of how beautiful something can be obviously can't be so beautiful that no entity can know how beautiful it is. But it can be so beautiful that it takes all your attention, all your knowledge, all your focus, all your mental direction to sustain a vision of it which is commensurate with how beautiful it is. So that's an experience we've all had, an experience you know, of something which just blows you away. And yet, how long do you get blown away by stuff? You know, your favorite song, your favorite line of poetry, your favorite painting, your favorite landscape, your favorite view of things, where you were just awestruck by how amazing it is. 
And how long does that last? You know, if you're really lucky, 30 seconds. And probably not that. Those 30 seconds are amazing. And you think they'll last forever, but they don't. They last 30 seconds. Right? Can you think of a peak experience that has sustained itself as a peak experience? So what Shelley is saying here is something like peak experience, sustaining a peak experience. That's what he's aiming at. And of course you can't do it, but you should still try. So to scarcely know how beautiful fire is means that you are putting everything into that knowledge. And you can't sustain that. You can't put everything into that knowledge for long. But maybe what you can get is something like you can do it from time to time. You should try to do it as much as you can. What he's describing here is what he's always trying to do in his poetry, which is to get as fast as he can to peak experiences and then to try to sustain those peak experiences as long as he can. And The Witch of Atlas is very much a poem. In being a visionary poem, it's very much a poem about that. And again, to say that men can scarcely know how beautiful fire is, that goes with the idea that the witch transcends reality. That is, a beauty which can't be known doesn't exist. And it simply doesn't exist. But a beauty which almost can't be known is hovering on the edge of the visionary world the witch lives in that doesn't need to exist, needs to be known in order for us to be able to think of it, talk of it, write poems about it, envision it. But one thing it can, it can dispense with is existence, just as the witch doesn't exist. It doesn't need to exist. So what Shelley is pushing here towards is an idea of the visionary where the thing, where what counts is the vision is seeing rather than the thing seen. But seeing hard. Seeing isn't just, oh yeah, I can see that, that's fine, it's, it's all up to me. Seeing is if I go as deep and as hard as I can in my own thought in my own capacity to see, I might be able, at least scarcely but still, be able to see how beautiful fire is, to know how beautiful fire is. So it's that really interesting interaction between knowing something which is not real, between knowing and unreality, knowing how beautiful fire is as though it were something independent of us because what we know is always what's independent of us knowing how beautiful fire is when beauty is not independent of us but it requires us to put everything we have into knowing it that's what beauty requires and that's what poetry writing requires for Shelley so let's segue to Frankenstein by my reminding you 
of the beginning of Canto Three of Child Harold. I mean, not of Child Harold, of um, Don Juan. Um, you knew we weren't done with it. Um, but we already talked about this. Um, so remember the situation. Where does where does Mary Shelley? Why does she write Frankenstein? How did Frankenstein come into existence? They were telling who was they. Shelley and Mary Shelley. And who else? And Byron. And Byron. And who else? Anyone remember? Polidori. Yes, good. His doctor, Polidori, um, whose ghost story actually survives. Polidori's ghost story survives. Have you read it? No. Okay. It's pretty good. Um, They were telling ghost ghost stories in this incredibly miserable summer um, on Lake Geneva. And um, the others, except for Polidori, kind of gave up. But she had this idea. So Byron, her close friend, her half-sister's, or her stepsister's boyfriend, um, her husband's best friend, writes in Don Juan, um, and this is, we've already looked at this, so um, just remind yourself of this at the beginning of Canto Three, He who grown aged in this world of woe in deeds not years, piercing the depths of life so that no wonder waits him <coughs> nor below can love or sorrow, fame, ambition, strife cut his heart again with the keen knife of silent, sharp endurance. He can tell why thought seeks refuge in lone caves, yet rife with airy images and shapes which dwell still unimpaired, though old in the soul's haunted cell. So that should sound almost like an inspiration for the Witch of Atlas. That idea that the that thought seeks refuge in lone caves, yet rife with airy images, and shapes which dwell still unimpaired, though old, in the soul's haunted cell. That sounds like the description of the witch, done in three lines and not nearly as intense as Shelley's description, but you can see that they think alike. So what does that mean? What does it mean for thought to seek refuge in lone caves, as Byron is describing it? Tis to create, and in creating live a being more intense, that we endow with form our fancy, gaining as we give the life we image, even as I do now. So we endow our form with form our fancy. We, ha- we imagine something, and then we give it a form. We don't just let the imagination flicker through our minds, but if we're poets, we try to arrest it and give it a form and create an entity, a fictional entity, out of it. So, And that's what poetic creation is. Do people know what poesis means in Greek? This is the kind of thing you always learn in college. What, it, what the verb poean means, from which our word poet comes from? To shape or create, yes. So the poet is a maker, a creator. And that's what Byron, that's a standard, everyone knew that definition in the 19th century, that that's the, that's the root meaning of um, being a poet, is being a creator, someone who makes things. That's why Plato didn't like the poets, because he said they're not describing the truth, they're making stuff up. But that is 
what the poets saw as their glory is that they weren't restricted to the truth, but could create things for themselves. So we endow with form our fancy in order to create, and in creating, live a being more intense. So somehow creation gives us a more intense being. being doing, writing poetry, not only gives intensity to the creations that poets make, but they themselves live a being more intense. So it is to create, and in creating, live a being more intense that we endow with form our fancy, gaining as we give the life we image. So we image a life, we create a fictional character, bring it to life, and we gain that life itself from the very entity to which we give that life to, even as I do now. Here he's talking about Don Juan, but he's also talking more generally about all poetic creations of poetic beings. What am I? Nothing. But not so art thou, soul of my thought. So the soul of his thought is the character, the poetic character he creates. I am nothing, but you're not nothing, soul of my thought, with whom I traverse earth, invisible but gazing as I glow. So I create a being, and then like the Witch of Atlas, I go everywhere with it. I am invisible, but I gaze, I look at my being traversing the earth with whom I traverse earth, invisible but gazing as I glow, mixed with thy spirit, blended with thy birth, and feeling still with thee in my crushed feelings dearth. So even though I, my feelings are crushed, I no longer am capable of feeling that reality has anything for me. By creating a poetic figure, I can gaze with its eyes, imagine its experience of the world in which and for which I create it. And that gives me back the life that I give to it. So you can see this as a description of what Percy Shelley is doing in The Witch of Atlas. But what else can you see it as? Who else is creating beings? He said, putting Frankenstein on the top of the pile. <laughs> Not a doctor. People always say that. So the real mistake about Frankenstein is to call the monster Frankenstein. Um, but the very subtle mistake about Frankenstein is to think that Victor Frankenstein is a doctor. Those of us who have PhDs, you know, I mean, he's not. Um, He's a student. He's the pale student of unhallowed arts, but he never gets his doctorate. With good reason. I mean, the guy's very destructive if you think about it. Yeah, so that's what he's doing. Um, okay, so what did, how far did people get in your, in your first reading? Where will you reread from? Let's put it this way. I got the end of this volume. The end of the first volume. Okay. Um, so should we do some plot summarizing? A little? Okay, go for it. 
What guy? Um, I don't, I don't um, what is his name? Anyone? Walton. 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 Robert Walton. Go on. He writes um, letters to his sister, and then he writes about this guy that they find on the ice. <coughs> yeah. And then uh, we segue into, which is Frankenstein. Yeah. And then we segue into his story, which is framed within the letters. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so we get the letters that he's writing his sister. What's he? What's Walton looking for? No. Sorry. No, he's interested in that, but he's actually looking for the Northwest Passage. He's looking for which is which um, is finally existing thanks to global warming. Um, looking for a shortcut. <laughs> no, it is. Yeah. Um, looking for a shortcut above North America, above Canada. Um, this was before the Panama Canal. So in order to sail from Europe to Asia, if you sailed westward, you had to go around South America and back, and especially if you wanted to go from the east coast of North America to Asia, you had to sail all the way down below South America and then, and then back up. So people had this idea. Henry Hudson was one of the first that there might be a way to find waterways that would take you um, past North America to the north. Um, Hudson thought what's now called the Hudson River might have been that. Um, so he, the reason it's called the Hudson River is he sailed way up the Hudson until to his um, unspeakable disappointment, the water turned fresh um, because the Hudson is salty. Do people know this? Do you know the Hudson River? The Hudson is salty all the way up to the Tappan Zee Bridge. Um, it's still salt water. And so he sailed all the way up to where the Tappan Zee Bridge is now. And then the water started turning fresh, and he realized that this wasn't open water to the Pacific Ocean. Um, same with Hudson Bay. If you know where Hudson Bay is in Canada, um, that was another attempt to find a way to the Pacific without going around South America. So that's what Walton is doing also. People really wanted to find a way around North America that didn't involve having to sail practically to the South Pole um, to get around the Americas. Um, and so that's what Walton is looking for. So then he meets Victor Frankenstein, who starts telling him his story. Um, and later, someone else is going to tell a little bit of the story, too. Um, but who would that be? <laughs> The monster, good guess. Um, and he's also going to tell Victor some of his story. That is to say, Victor, um, when he finds the monster, have people gotten to that part? So he seeks the monster. Um, okay, well, that you guys have. Um, he seeks the monster and finally confronts him. And um, I guess there would be a spoiler alert here, which I've already slightly spoiled for you. Um, the monster can speak. Um, he's not like the monster in the movies, just saying, <laughs> um, And the reason that he can speak, the way he's learned to speak, um, if you don't know it yet, how many people have ever read it? 
read the whole thing. So, so most of you do know. Um, but you don't know. Did you know he could speak? I found out he could speak. Did you get that far? In the Alps, right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah Mont Blanc. Yeah. Yeah, okay. Um, and do you know how we learned language? In the hovel? Uh, yeah, uh, and it was Eden. On the I thought you said Eden, which was a great idea. <laughs> yeah, no, no, it was Eden where he was hidden. That's right. Uh, okay, and I, yeah, he it was, was Eden. Like, he was hidden in Eden. Okay. Yeah. And, That's and, great. I, lo- yeah, I love the fact that you said that. Mm, was a grandfather who, who had this. Oh, he was blind. Uh huh. And um, he thought he. Why? And do you remember? Uh, or Kevin, do you remember? Why, why is it that there's um, a language lesson, language lessons being given that the monster can eavesdrop on? Okay, maybe because the, the, the son's wife uh-huh. was, uh, was uh, blind. Yes. Okay. And rescued. Okay, and so she has, she has to learn So she has to learn French. Remember, this is all French. Um, and naturally, um, the monster can listen to these lessons, and because he's got superhuman intelligence, um, that's a crucial fact about the monster, is that he has superhuman intelligence. Um, Because he has superhuman intelligence, um, and can really know how beautiful fire is, um, he is able to pick up these lessons very, very quickly. He also teaches himself to read. Um, and what books does he read? Yeah, of all things. Presumably a French translation of Paradise Lost? No, she didn't think it through. <laughs> uh, it's take, it all takes place in French, except she forgot that part. Um, so, yeah, he learns about the world partly through reading Paradise Lost. Do you remember the other books? Ladder? Um... No, he quotes it, but that's not one of the books. Sorry? Yes, yeah, yeah, like someone um, who hears a dreadful thing behind him. Um, You should do, of course, one of the books that the monster, well, it might be bad for you. Um, He learns to speak, and he also learns about the world. Uh, what does he learn about the world? Or what does he think he learns about the world? Everybody hates him. <laughs> okay, well, he finds that out when he goes outside. And people come after him with, whoa, fire. Um, but he also stacks the firewood. Um, why is the old man blind? It matters to the plot, right? Have we, has everyone gotten that far? Oh, I don't mean how did he get blind. Sorry. I mean, if you're Mary Shelley writing Frankenstein, why do you make the old man blind? How does it help 
that the old man is blind. Because the monster, like, because he can't see the monster, so the monster grows up thinking that everyone's going to be fine. Yeah. He grows up, like, develops. Yeah. So being blind um, me makes it possible, makes, makes a bit of plot possible, um, which is that the old man doesn't see him as a monster. Um, another reason that he's blind is thematic. Um, or thematic's even the wrong word. Um, sorry? Milton. Say it again. Milton. Shout it out. <laughs> Milton. Milton. Why Milton? He was blind. Yeah. There's, there's a sense in which you could almost think, almost um, see that the old man is the presence of Milton in the book. Um, Milton gives you the epigraph of the book, remember? It's, did I request the maker from my clay to mold me man? Did I solicit thee from darkness to promote me? Um, who do you think is saying that? Satan. No. Really? To mold me man. Did I request thee, maker, from my clay to mold me man? Did I solicit thee from darkness to promote me? Say it. All right, Adam, whose name some people derive from the word for clay. Milton may have thought that. It turns out not to be true. But the name Adam, do people know this? Is at least a pun for red clay. Um, the Hebrew word for red clay is very similar to the, the name Adam. So the idea is he's made of clay. He's, he's, are you guys giving each other significant looks because you agree or disagree? No, just biblical puns. Biblical puns, always fun? Yeah. Yeah, okay. <laughs> um, so who's he talking to? And, yes, good. Hence maker or poet. Ooh. Um, why is he complaining? What do you think the context in Paradise Lost is? Yeah, they've eaten the fruit. Um, now he's being punished. And he's saying it wasn't worth, I didn't ask to be born. Um, something that everyone will say at some point in their lives, <laughs> at some point in their childhood. I didn't ask to be born. Um, why am I being punished when I never signed up for this? They didn't say to me, do you want to be born? And I said, why, yes, actually, I do. Um, why is that impossible? In other words, why, what, think of this question. Did I request the maker from my clay to mold me, man? Um, that's a rhetorical question whose answer has to be no. Um, even if you knew nothing about the prehistory of Adam's relationship to God, how do you know that he didn't request to exist? Yeah, because you can't request to exist unless you already exist. So think how that is a little bit like the question of can there be beauty that can't be known. The very idea of beauty that can't be known is like the idea of a request without the requester existing yet, a request for existence. Please let me exist. If you request existence, you already exist. So what Adam is asking, but what Mary Shelley is really pressing on more than 
Milton does, because that's not quite his interest, is what it means to find yourself as an existing being. What it means not to have any say in your existence. What it means to be a conscious being when that is something that comes, that is the most central part of you, and yet is not so central a part of you that you were responsible for it. Did people read um, the author's introduction? Good. Um, I, what I used to do, um, and what's kind of a fun thing to do, but um, I didn't do it this time, is I used to do a quiz on Frankenstein. And it was an identify the quotations quiz. And so there were questions like this. Um, who says this? I bid my hideous progeny go forth and prosper. Who does that sound like? Sorry? It sounds like Victor. Um, so what I used to do is do a 10-question um, quiz with all the questions coming from the author's introduction, all the identify the quotes coming from the author's introduction. Um, because what it's worth noticing about the author's introduction is how intentionally, she's writing this 12 years later, so what's happened in the meantime, the author's introduction is October 15, 1831, when the third edition of Frankenstein was published. Um, in the meantime, nine years earlier, her husband had drowned. So she wrote Frankenstein that summer um, while they were all living, not that happily, but reasonably happily together um, on the shores of Lake Geneva. Um, five years later, or four years later, her husband drowns. Um, and um, now here's a new edition of Frankenstein coming out. And she writes, and now once again, I bid my hideous progeny go forth and prosper. I have an affection of it for it, for it was the offspring of happy days when death and grief were but words which found no true echo in my heart. Its several pages speak of many a walk, many a drive, and many a conversation when I was not alone, and my companion was one who, in this world, I shall never see more. But this is for myself. My readers have nothing to do with these associations. So what she's saying is she wrote this book before she knew what she was writing about. She wrote this book, which is a book about such things as death and grief, before she'd experienced, or that's at least what she's saying in 1831, before she'd experienced death and grief. As though she could write about those things, as though, as though anyone could only write about those things if they hadn't really experienced them. That's one of the strange paradoxes about literature, which is the greatest writing about death and grief tends to come from people who are imagining it but haven't experienced it. Because once you've experienced it, the idea that writing could offer you some way of dealing with it becomes much less convincing. Death and grief seem or are 
much deeper human experiences than writing can counter. Now that's not always true. There are plenty of people who do write really deep and powerful and serious works out of the experience of death and grief. But generally, the greatest works about those, the greatest elegies, Milton's Lycidas, for example, are elegies where the writer writing the elegy, writing the poem of grief, didn't really care. Um, Milton's Lycidas is generally and rightly regarded as the greatest elegy in English. Milton wrote it for a classmate of his who drowned. Milton barely knew the guy um, and didn't, you know, wasn't really grief-struck at all that this thing had happened to him. But they said, you know, we're putting together a book of poems about Edward King. Um, he drowned. Would you contribute a poem? You're a pretty good poet for someone who's 23. Um, and Milton said, sure. And then he wrote this amazingly great elegy. But if he'd really cared, it's very doubtful that he could have written it. And she's saying something similar here, that she could write this book because these were words that found no true echo in her heart. They weren't, to go back to the um, distinction we were making in The Witch of Atlas, they weren't real. They weren't real things for her. They were imaginary things, death and grief. And yet, <coughs> for her, even though it's the offspring of happier days, it's still a book that she now, as a reader of her own work, a decade and a half later, she thinks the book really is about death and grief. So she was able to write about death and grief before she'd experienced those things. But she says that it was the offspring of happier days when death and grief found no true echo in her heart because the book is about death and grief. And now the death and, death and grief in the book do find a true echo in her heart. So what does that mean? That is that if you, what I'm asking you to do, the reason I did this quiz, um, where all the questions came from the introduction, but all applied to the book as a whole, um, is what I'm asking you to think about is how to map her relationship to her hideous progeny. What does progeny mean, anyone? Offspring. Um, her relation to her hideous progeny. Um, you know, and she's obviously making that joke intentionally. It's not, oh, wow, we've seen something that she, she didn't realize. Um, <coughs> How do you map her relationship to her hideous progeny on to the story that Frankenstein tells? So what is the analogy? You know, the way... I think they don't ask these questions. In, the, in fact, I know they don't ask these questions on the SATs anymore. But back in the day, um, a typical SAT question would be, Grung is to ladder as blank is to wheel. And possibilities. What is it? Spoke. All right. Yes. But SA, so the SATs, it's like a quarter of the verbal test would have those. But they don't do those anymore, right? No. Did you guys take them? Uh, I think we're taking them this spring. Did you take the PSATs? Yeah, we did. Any analogies? Like that? No, there were no analogies. Yeah, are you glad? Um, I said. I'll be like over Sorry? I'll be like over 
Yeah. Analogies are to SATs like anchovies are to pizza. Make sense? <laughs> I don't know. Um, depends whether you like anchovies or not. It also depends on whether you like analogies or not. It also depends on whether you're going to be confused by the fact that anchovy and analogy start with an and end with y. But um, okay, so here's the analogy. Um, Victor is to the monster as Mary is to her book. Um, how does that help if you think of Victor and the monster and their relationship? How does that help us understand what she's saying when she says that she wrote this book when um, death and grief found no true echo in her heart? I mean, Victor was really excited about the monster and like all the discoveries he was making, and then it turned sour. And then, I mean, it's the same thing with the book. Like, she was probably really happy that they were all writing these ghost stories, and she like wrote this book, and then all of a sudden, like her husband died, and just reminded her of that, and she couldn't get away from it. Okay, so um, in the same way that it's the offspring, you could say of a certain kind of thoughtlessness, which is what she said, the offspring of happier days, that is, days when I didn't really think <coughs> deeply about death and grief, um, and could write about them because I didn't really think deeply about them. Um, Victor, who, why does he create the monster? What is it that, um, that um, catalyzes his desire to try and give life to dead matter? What's his motive? Um, but, I mean, uh, he talks about the zero of life, but uh, to be able to, to, to heal. Uh, yeah, I mean, yeah, he has um, kind of like medical interest. Yeah. And and what gets him interested in that? Because he reads, right? Uh, no, I, I didn't get really. Well, then, no, no. so he reads, and he's really interested in Paracelsus, and really interested in various um, <coughs> alchemical experiments, and also experiments about galvanism and what lightning can do, and. Um, all those sorts of things. Um, he's interested in Ben Franklin's experiences with electricity. Um, but he also has personal reasons. What is it that, why is it that he's so appalled by death that he wants to counter it? Yeah, because his mother has died and he's so horrified as a child by the death of his mother, that he thinks, I would do anything. That's what first sparks, if you'll forgive the pun, sparks his interest in this. Um, it's terrible that people die. I would do anything to bring her back to life. And that's not going to happen, but that's what, and you know, it totally doesn't happen. So many people die in this novel, and he doesn't bother to bring anyone back to life. Um, but, um, the idea that 
it's the fact of death, the horror of death, the awfulness of death that first gets him going down the pathway of bringing the dead back to life, the pathway of these experiments. Um, he knows what death is like. He knows what grief is like. So when she says that death and grief found no true echo in my heart, part of what she's saying is I was writing about someone who was filled with grief over the death of those he loved and who did what he did out of such grief. And the result of what he did was more death and more grief. So she was writing about stuff she didn't understand, you could almost say. Or you, you could do more than almost say. You could scarcely say. No, you could do more than that. You could say in full voice and with absolute confidence that she, was, that she is telling us in her introduction that she's writing about stuff she herself hasn't experienced. Now, it's not actually quite true that she hasn't experienced this. Her mother died in childbirth when she was born. Um, so she grew up without a mother. Um, do people know who her mother is? And who is Wollstonecraft? She, uh, the one who wrote Yeah, so she was one of the first and most important feminists, um, whose most important book is a book called A Vindication of the Rights of Women. So um, the idea that women can vote, the idea that women um, are full participators in um, political and social life, the idea that women have the same rights as men do, um, she's largely responsible for being the first articulator and demander of such things. Her father, William Godwin, the reason um, the Shelleys met was that Percy Shelley was an admirer of her father, who is a radical philosopher, um, radical political philosopher. And Shelley thought that what he um, was advocating was great, um, and then eloped with his daughter. Um, but, um, she certainly had whatever grief comes from growing up motherless. Um, and some of her children had died as well as infants. Um, what that means, do you remember the color of the monster's eyes when she describes her vision of what it would be like when this is also in the introduction. We'll end with this, but this is uh, interesting enough to point out to you. Um, this is, do you guys have the um, signet or you have the penguin? Um, all right, well, this is um, about four pages into the introduction. Um, it's the paragraph that begins, night waned upon this talk. That is, they were talking about Dr. Darwin, etc. Night waned upon this talk, and even the witching hour had gone by before we retired to rest. Um, end of that paragraph, um, and we'll look at it um, in greater detail later. Um, the pale student of unhallowed art would hope that left to itself, so he sees the monsters are coming to life, he would hope that left to itself, the slight spark of life which he had communicated would fade that this thing which had received such imperfect animation would subside into dead matter. 
that he might sleep in the belief that the silence of the grave would quench forever the transient existence of the hideous corpse. So notice it's the same word, hideous corpse, which he had looked upon as the cradle of life. He sleeps, but he's awakened. That is the creator of whom, he, whom she hasn't named yet, but the creator of this spark of life. He sleeps, but he is awakened. He opens his eyes. Behold, the horrid thing stands at his bedside, opening his curtains and looking on him with yellow, watery, but speculative eyes. So there are a number of adjectives there, but the one I want to ask you about is yellow. Why does the monster have yellow eyes? Yeah. Isn't there a sickness that they used to have? Yes. Jaundice. Jaundice. Yeah. Which she's seen in her own babies. So this moment where she's imagining Victor Frankenstein bringing life into the world and that living being that he has given the spark of life to, looking at him with yellow eyes. That's autobiographical. That's jaundice. Jaundice, which is when the liver isn't sufficiently developed to handle um, bilirubin. And so you get jaundice, and the symptom of it is yellow skin and the whites of your eyes that turn yellow. Um, that's a real thing she's describing there. Um, she may not even be thinking of it as a real thing, but we can tell that she's describing something she's actually seen. Um, so it's not quite true that grief hasn't found any echo in her heart, or that death hasn't found any echo in her heart. Um, but it's still something that she doesn't feel will be totally true until Shelley and Byron have died. Um, okay, reread Frankenstein for Tuesday. Um, make your weekend fun. And we'll see you then. Thank you. Thank you for coming.